At Nationwide, diversity, inclusion, and belonging are at the heart of its culture and core to its DNA. Nationwide is made up of extraordinary people doing great things for its members, associates, and communities across the country. To learn more, head over to nationwide.com diversity and remember, Nationwide is on your side. everyone, it's Marquita Harris, Working Money Editor for Essence, and welcome to Unbossed, a podcast for entrepreneurs, self-starters, and women who are about their business. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Sherelle Dorsey, a data journalist and the CEO of The Plug. The Plug is a platform where she and her amazing team turn data and other black and brown tech news into meaningful stories. Her platform is a prime example of what can come to fruition when you merge your passions to create something that also serves your community. In this conversation, Sherelle and I talk numbers, but of course, before we got into the nitty gritty, we talked about her upbringing and just how vital it was for her to be raised in a community of Black women that supported, provided, and invested in her since childhood. Full disclosure, I've known Sherelle for a little bit. I've had the pleasure of being her editor for some wonderful pieces about Black women and tech for Essence magazine. We also discovered some similarities with our professional backgrounds in this conversation. So beware, there are definitely a few kikis. All right, enough from me. Let's hear from Sherelle. sitting here with Sherelle Dorsey. And Sherelle has just pulled up to the Zoom. She is the founder and CEO of The Plug, which is one of my favorite platforms for all things tech, journalism. And uh, we're going to get into, if you're not familiar with it, we're going to get into everything that she does and all that The Plug encompasses in just a moment. But first, how you doing, girl? Girl, it has been a new world, <laughs> a whole new world, just every week, week to week. It's a different world, but I will say that I am blessed and I am grateful. Um, I know it's just such a trying time for so many of us in the world. So um, I'm not going to complain. Not same, same. There are complaints, but we're not even I there mean, are complaints. <laughs> <laughs> so happy to just, you know, have good health. And it, 2020 is definitely making me, you know, just really, really think about the abundance that I have in my life. And I think that's a, you know, it's a huge theme, but um, we could definitely have that conversation. We're going to have that over tea another time. Yes. I, have, <laughs> I got a lot of questions and I know you're busy. Um, for every guest that comes onto this show, I like to just start things off with, tell me your very first, first job, the first paycheck you ever got for work you did. Yes. So I got a job by happenstance. I grew up learning how to tap. Most of us, you know, our parents sent us to tap in ballet. (laughs) We were all like in the cutesy tutus and, you know, the ballet slippers and the, you know, the, the uncoordinated dance moves. And I had been tapping for about three years and my instructor had to have surgery on her ankle. And so she asked if I can come in to help assist her. 
Okay. And so I was I was really good, really fast. Okay. And so I came in to assist her and for like three weeks and ended up choreographing the dance recital for the younger kids. How old are you? How old? I was 12 years old. What? Yes. What? So talk about a finesse. Wow. I I choreographed the dance component for the recital. And then I presented it to her and was like, hey, and it was, I want to say that year, the Rugrats song came out. Remember with Maya? I was going to say with Maya in the video. Like, take me there. I want to go there. So you got to imagine like all these little brown girls in their tap shoes, like dancing to the beat. And so I I presented it to my dance teacher and she was like, yes, we can do this for the recital. And I was like, by the way, can I continue to work with them so I can really perfect the dance? And she's like, sure. Mm-hmm. And so she gave me that class to teach. And so I would show up every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. And then she slowly started adding more classes. So I was teaching about three to four classes every Saturday wow. throughout, throughout like from, from 12 years old till the time I left for college. And so she had given me almost most of the tap classes and I was probably making like $25, $30 an hour. So question. Whoa. Okay. I mean, I don't want to age you, but I think, I think I got a few years on you, but I'm assuming it was around the time where, you know, the minimum wage was like $6. It was like $6. Right. (laughs) And you know, it was just a few hours a week. So there were no like child labor issues, you know, or anything like that. But I was like, wait, you're going to give me money for this? And then my mom was so happy because like I grew up in a single parent household. So, you know, my mom was like, all right, you're taking all these classes. You're doing all these activities. I was, I was active. I had way too much energy. That's why she put me in dance in the first place. And so she was super excited because she was like, oh, you can pay for your own dance lessons and your own tap shoes and your own costumes. And so (laughs) as quickly as I was making it, I was also spending it. Got it. That's pretty amazing that you were 12 and also that you kept that same job until you went to college. That's kind of, uh, you don't hear a lot about that. Um, so, and you also grew up in Seattle, correct? Yeah, okay. yeah Seattle. So did you have any siblings? Tell me about your upbringing, you know, in Seattle, you said single parent home. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just actually, I was thinking about this today, just about how like my aunts, we all lived, like everyone bought houses, like in the same kind of area. So mm-hmm. we literally can walk from house to house. Um, wow. So we had a lot of autonomy, me and my cousins. And so I just remember, and this is just like the power of black women. And like, even though, you know, my aunts were single parents, my mom was a single parent, my grandfather lived up the street. So he was on duty around pickup, you know, for activities yeah. and like that. And then my aunts were like drop off duty. So they had this like crazy rotation mm-hmm. of port. So I had this incredible village of okay. aunts and my mom's best friends. And so, you know, I never wanted for anything, you know, and these were the women that also rallied to, um, to, to do things like bought me my first pair of diamond earrings and like ensure that I was a debutante and yeah. you know, ensure I, I had everything that I needed, you know, for school. Like my mom, you know, was a professional, she owned her own home, you know, but it's like, the budget always increases the older you get because you want to be involved in more activities. So between me making my own money, because, you know, my mom, my mom's whole thing was like, when you start paying the bills, you can start making decisions. So (laughs) always having a hustle or some kind of job was always about me being able to make my own decisions. And I've carried that throughout my life. 
Um, but I also saw these incredible women like decide their own futures, like despite their circumstances and not necessarily having a traditional partner in the home. Mm. They had a partnership amongst each other. And even when I think about getting my first job teaching dance, you know, Shar uh, Younger, uh, you know, just an incredible black woman who I still stay in touch with today, who believed in my capabilities and in my leadership. Like I remember like she would you know, at some point I just kind of exceeded what she could teach me. And so yeah. she would pay for me to go take classes and master classes when like famous tappers would come into town. Like she yeah. put in the bill, she bought me the expensive tap shoes. She would pick me up and drop me off to classes. Like when I say that black women raised me, they truly raised me from the ground up, you know, some blood and some not blood, but yeah, girl, that was my experience. I also just love that you're still in contact with her. So she's been able to, you know, the, the work that she put, that she invested and trusted. Yeah. Kind of. I always feel bad because I never went back home to Seattle. Like I, I went to school in New York and I stayed there. And, you know, when she, as she got older, you know, she couldn't teach anymore. And she always thought that I would come back and she'd give me the studio. Yeah. And so she ended up having to sell it. And it was one of few black owned studios. You can imagine like um, black Seattle is like less than 10% of the population. So our, our kind of institutions, our cultural institutions matter that much more because no matter where you lived in the city, you could be an hour away from the studio. People would bring their kids to these black yeah. studios just yeah. for that, just for that, that culture, because during the week, you don't have that. Yeah. So, um, so I, I always feel really bad about not coming home to take it over because, you know, it was sold. It's no longer the black pinnacle yeah. of, of dance and culture. There's of course some others that I also got to journey through, but um, but you know, she, we stay in touch and I always call her Char. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about, um, you know, what, earlier you mentioned that you left Seattle for New York and you never turned back. So from what I understand, uh, fact check me, uh, you studied data journalism at Columbia, but prior to that, you studied at the fashion Institute marketing, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So can you kind of walk me through what were you originally interested in and also what changed your trajectory? Yes. So um, so part of my Seattle journey and kind of that next tier job that I had was um, working at Microsoft. I got an opportunity to be a part of a program called the Technology Access Foundation that was built in 96 by a Black woman, a retired Microsoft um, software engineer, Trish Malines Zico, who still has her program, but wanted to teach kids of color how to code. So mm -hmm. She turned a storefront like in inner city Seattle into a computer training program. And I start the story there because that's kind of what led me in my journey. And so I would learn programming languages during the week. So I'd have dance class like Monday, Wednesdays, and then I go to learn C sharp Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays. So a busy, busy schedule. Um, but that really gave me this concept of I can create things kind of out of thin air using technology. And then, of course, I had this like artsy side. Yeah. So getting to New York um, was really about kind of merging all of these things, right? Tap dancing. Uh, before I left, I got a chance to dance with Savion Glover. Um, I started off dancing for a company in New York while going to class. And FIT felt like an, an, a convergence of all of these worlds of, of business, of entrepreneurship, of technology, of art, and the way in which we see and feel the world. And so, um, yeah, I studied international trade and marketing specifically for the fashion industries. Yeah. And I loved it because, you know, you're, you're walking into this space with these creative, like 20 somethings who are building their own businesses. And, you know, at the time, I want to say 
like circa 2005 to 2010, we were all kind of using and leveraging like online. And I think even the payment solutions has gotten better. Yeah. So we're all like building these, these businesses online. And so um, it, it just was, it was just such an inspirational space to learn business. Um, but then also to understand why people buy, how they buy. Um, and, and, you know, and also at the time, I mean, it was like, this is New York city, yeah. you know, gorgeous black women. My mentors were, you know, just, beauty gurus all and, and do you mind me asking what year what when were you experiencing all of this all this in new york yeah i i moved i moved to new york at 18 in 2005 yeah. um yeah i mean and it was just like volunteering at fashion week and working with yeah. designers and then you know at fit we just had like calvin i remember calvin klein you know coming and doing a talk with us and talking to us about being a 20 20 year old boss you know, yeah. and just like the leadership skills it takes to build a global brand. And, you know, I worked for um, for urban fashion houses like Parrish, uh, who formerly was like a Nietzsche and Mecca. And um, oddly enough, Tony Shellman was from Seattle and went to school with my aunt. So I kind of had a plug there. So for like a year and a half, like I was, you know, grabbing coffee and, you know, steaming clothes and then also learning like how they were doing marketing and, and product placement and things like that. Um, and then what was really hilarious is after I graduated, um, the, our, my keynote, our keynote speaker for graduation in 2010 was Norma Kamali. And about, I got to tell you, you're speaking my language. <laughs> definitely. Like my, my beginnings, it was very much, um, rooted in fashion journalism and a lot of indie designers and, I love Norma. You're I, all these names. I'm just like, yes, I love having this conversation because it was such a different world for me coming from a, a land of Birkenstocks and technology into a space where just powerful women were leading these incredible brands. And Norma Kamali actually hired me right out of college. And so I started working for her three days after graduation. And I had the opportunity to work for beauty brands as well. There was a startup called Cinco Vidas. I worked for Eden Body Works, you know, so all of my mentors were in the beauty space, but I saw it as more than just like, you know, lipsticking leggings and being gorgeous, which was incredible. But it was also that like, these were fierce women negotiating incredible deals. I even had a very brief internship with Jones Magazine at the time too. So it was just, yeah, I worked for Jones for a little while. Cycling <laughs> you like your whole life. Like this is hilarious. I love it. <laughs> wow. I'm my mind as well. I never hear anyone mention Jones because it was such a, it's, you know, it was a, a beautiful moment and a tiny little time frame. Mm -hmm. Um, that period of media, it was it was precious. It was, it was very, very near and dear to me. It was documenting, I think, these early movements of Black beauty and Black fashion um, that now today, like, we're seeing an explosive growth. And I just remember when, when Lisa Price, you know, still had her stores open on 125th Street. And I remember an editor there who had sent me to her party when she launched the Disney collection. And she talked about like her daughter, she had just adopted her daughter and just talked about using the Princess Tiana collection on her hair. And I just remember like out of all the people, I was like the lowly intern, probably my makeup was probably not that great because I was just learning how to really do my makeup. And I just remember like she was the first black woman in beauty who had like a deal with Macy's. She had these stores and it was like looking at her as an entrepreneur, I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I want to be that. Amazing. Walk me through, I know you eventually made it to be, is, is it the marketing manager for Uber? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
what was that? How did you kind of get there? And also, what was it like working for the company at that time? I've heard a lot of different stories. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to remember what my NDA said. Um, so <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want you to get in trouble. But again, I've heard good, bad, and in between. So. Um, tell me about that experience and also how did you land that? That's at, especially at that time. That's a huge thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I had made this decision, um, you know, because fashion and tech were really merging in a really incredible way. Um, you know, I had worked with Norma Kamali when she was like really pushing e-commerce and this kind of try before you buy FedEx system. Yeah. She was ahead of the time. From, like, Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. And so um, so I knew that I wanted to get back into tech into in a real way. And I was looking to leave New York, but I wanted to be a part of something that was growing. And of course, all these tech companies were just booming. And it was like, how do I get into this? So I made the decision to relocate to Charlotte, um, you know, saw that they were kind of hiring for the and expanding this team, you know, interviewed, which was like a super crazy process. Thank God for like my early days at Microsoft, because I, I was like ready for like the whiteboard test and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Um, and so it was a wild ride. That was 2015. And, you know, it was maybe Uber had just launched about five years prior on the West Coast. So I had was familiar with it on the West Coast. But then like going to the Southeast, it was very new. And, you know, it was it was just nonstop all the time. Like I think my first day was like a 14 hour day. Wow. We were a small, small team having to run this market. And I will say, you know, that year and a half that I was there, it was like, I got my whole MBA. Yeah. Everyone had to do almost every single job. Um, and it was just, it was fast paced. It was difficult, takes a day, impossible, takes a week. You know, you'd come up with an idea. And as long as your manager cleared it by the third day, you were already launching. Wow. So it was insane. It was insane. And then, you know, I was always, you know, between DC and San Francisco and, you know, collaborating. I mean, there's lots of folks who I still stay in touch with now, um, you know, and, and for some of its challenges, I think mm-hmm. at the same time, it gave, I think everyone and particularly myself an opportunity to see, you know, this is what the future really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also what also sparked sort of my interest in analytics because everything was numbers driven. It was like every week we had to measure the business. Yeah. Every week we had to pull queries and do analysis on what was working well and what wasn't. And that was kind of the first time that I had a job that forced me to really think critically based on data. Yeah. And it gave me an opportunity to also work with um, policymakers and um, like local transit authorities and provide things like heat maps and data visualizations and do storytelling around our impact, you know, across the state. And so for me, it was like, oh, wow, like, you mean I can write and, <laughs> and do you know, that and some stories together? Right. Yeah. That really sparked my interest in this world of data journalism. And so it just like completely blew my mind. And so the training that I received on the job was super, super critical to me even deciding to launch my own publication. Wow. And I'm, I mean, I'm still absorbing just uh, all of this, all of these different experiences that you've had that kind of led here that I had no idea. And let me tell you, I've worked with you (laughs) as a writer. You're also a brilliant writer and clearly, um, and I'm just, it's kind of mind blowing how you've been able to kind of merge all of these passions into the platform that you have now. Um, so the plug, yes. <laughs> um, 
for those that aren't aware, you know, what is the plug? How would you define it? And also tell me how you funded it, because I know uh, that's self-funded, correct? Yeah. Girl, I put it on the open a prayer. Lord knows. <laughs> But, you know, so, so the plug, we're a, we're a, you know, we're, we're a smart um, subscription-based digital news platform and insights platform that covers the Black innovation economy. And it sounds very broad and vague, um, but mostly my goal over the last few years, and I actually started writing on Black technology and trends, um, even just in college, but my goal was to center the stories, voices, and even just analysis of how we're, we're seeing these Black innovators, you know, even as, again, thinking of like Lisa Price, these Black innovators who are were taking ownership of their own kinds of companies within the tech space and even Black technologists. Yeah. And of course, you know, when you're working for startups, you know, I, from after Uber, I went to Google Fiber. When you're working for startups, you're constantly having to stay on top of the news in tech or you'll miss something. You'll completely miss something. You better know who sold, who raised money, all of those kinds of things. And so my challenge, honestly, was that I wasn't seeing deep coverage of what Black people were doing in technology. I wasn't seeing them quoted or sourced. I wasn't seeing this trend of um, Black folks who had made their money in government contracts who were now becoming angel investors. Like I was like, this is incredible. There's an entire movement going on and we're not including it in the everyday business news. And so that's how the plug really got started. It was, it started off just as a labor of love. You know, a lot of my friends would hit me up like, oh, have you heard of this or which conference that I go to? And so they're like, oh, you're the plug. You know who everyone is, you know what everyone's doing. And so I was like, huh, maybe I can synthesize this and just create like a daily newsletter, Monday through Friday, getting up right before work and pulling it together you know, I had no intention in creating anything else. But, you know, as I mentioned, that work that I did with Uber, with Data and Journal, I was like, hey, maybe I can try to create something that, you know, you'd read in a Wall Street Journal or you would read in the Financial Times, yeah. but it centers Black and Brown people. And so that was the impetus behind, I want to tell rigorous data-driven stories of Black and Brown people in the tech, financial, VC, you know, workforce development spaces. Yeah. And like I said, it, it genuinely is one of my, it's one of the only sites, you know, like it, the only yeah. platform, so to speak. Um, and it really is one of my favorites. I, I, I use it. I cite you guys. I do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think um, it's just, but it's a wonderful resource. And also it's clear that you've built a community and you can see it online. You see it through the newsletters and all of that. So um, just again, kudos, kudos to what you. you're to what you're creating, because I know you're still in the midst of it. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little about some numbers. Um, I think, especially as Black women, when we're navigating our careers and we're working in different industries for different companies, there's, you know, there's not a lot of salary transparency. Would you mind sharing, like, how much you were making at Uber in that role? And also, um, has your salary changed a lot now? Because um, from what I understand, you're doing the plug completely now, correct? Yeah, the plug is completely full time. So yeah. I can actually go back to like my first job out of college. Um, right. I had like little writing and PR things in, in, in college, you know, kind of on the side that I was building out. And so, you know, I was probably, I was paying enough to, I was making enough to pay like my rent and things like that. And, and that, you know, I had to work during college. So it helped me there. 
Um, and even when I was interning, which I know this has changed drastically, people will tell you to get a free internship. And I was like, look, sure. I don't have that luxury. So, you yeah, know, I parish, I was like, y'all have to pay me. Like, you want me to come here? You got to pay me. I was the only intern getting paid. And wow. I want to say I was making like not, nothing crazy, like maybe like 12 to $15 an hour. But I no. literally negotiated and said, if you want me here, you're going to have to pay me. And I used to bring my laptop to help fill orders and things like that. So I also proved to them, like, I can be of greater value to you all. And that's why you got to pay me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I finessed the check out of but that. Also, like, I'm gonna, I mean, I feel like this, that has to be related to the confidence that you built early on. Like you've been getting paid for your labor says since what, 12 years old. Yeah. You know, yeah. so this little, so this little 12 or $15 an hour, it's like, of course you're, you're going to pay me that or yeah. I'll just yeah. the opportunity. Absolutely. That's such an important mentality to have because I think a lot of times because we hear like, oh, you know, your first job or whatever will be an unpaid internship and we end up being conditioned to believe that's our only option. So you kind of, it, I love hearing that. You kind of went in and, you know, you were the only person getting paid. I didn't play that. You know, I got spoiled at Microsoft because, you know, it. we were getting paid, you know, 12, yeah. 13 an hour. I was at, I was 14 in my Microsoft job with an office and a desk. So I was like, I don't understand this world where you all don't pay me for my work, but this is not how I, this is not where I'm from. This is not, this not where I'm from. Listen, I <laughs> love it. So are you, okay. I like to ask the question to um, just to put things in perspective for anyone out there that is maybe working a cushy job that maybe they're not quite happy at, but they're thinking about branching out and doing their own platform or business. Are you in terms of salary right now and what you're earning? Are you secure? Are you are you able to live? <laughs> yes. You know, so security is such an interesting um, question because for the last few years, especially as an entrepreneur, you're sacrificing a great deal. I um, mean, I'll quickly just say, you know, my first job out of college, I think I was paid like 47K mm -hmm. out of that. And then going over to Uber, I won't give the exact numbers, but I will say, mm -hmm. you know, between like equity and you know perks and stuff like that plus salary it was probably just a little under like 75k which was kind of low for startups but I was like well we get bonuses we get RSUs and so yeah. you know, as I look at my stock now I'm like okay it's, it's gonna balance out yeah good good um but in terms of yeah entrepreneurship you know for many of us, we're not given, you know, and as you mentioned earlier, like I was self-funded. So I took money, some of my money from my 401k. I had an auntie give me 200 bucks and like, that was my funding, you know, that was my funding initially. And so for the first few years, even though I was able to secure sponsorship checks from folks like Capital One and JP Morgan Chase or what have you, I had to reinvest that back into the business. Yeah. And so, you know, I just put myself on salary back in January. Yeah. And so for me, it is, okay, what, what can I realistically live off of? But this was after taking on consulting projects, doing yeah. writing and getting myself so that I had okay, I have at least six months of emergency savings. I'm maxing out my IRA every year. You know, I have what I need to do my vacations and self-care. And I was like, okay. And I, I recently relocated to Atlanta and usually I'm between Atlanta and New York. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, it was also important for me to lower my cost of living drastically. 
Yeah. And so it was like, I can't build a startup in New York City because they want a million dollars for a, a studio. So I'm going to go ahead and <laughs> reduce my cost of living wow. and, and save aggressively. And so that for me has been the cushion around salary. So, you know, right now, what I pay myself for my company is really based on what's my bare minimum. Yeah. And where do I compensate with my speaking engagements, consulting gigs, additional freelance writing, like those kinds of things make up for it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I won't hit quite six figures this year um, because, like I said, my biggest thing is I have to start hiring. I have to start really growing and expanding the business. Yeah. Um, but I have ensured that I have a plan in place to cover my my basic expenses and for many of us who have student loans, right? Oh, like that's oh, oh, God. it's a whole thing. Said that and I tensed up. <laughs> right, right. Because I'm like hackers, you guys hack everything else. Like hack Sally May, please. Navient, please. Navient, <laughs> because she has been pestering me for the last decade. And I mean, I'm doing, you know, t- and technically I'm doing great, but it's just, it's, I can't regret it because I wouldn't be where I am. And I'm extremely right. blessed and fortunate for that. But Girl, when uh, I just I can't. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and that's the 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 challenging part too about entrepreneurship, where when you do have these barriers, you know, if you don't have someone that's completely covered your college expenses, a lot of folks don't take the risk because you do have all of these other expenses. And I would, you know, I, I thought think to myself right now, like if I were to have kids or other folks that I'm responsible for, like thank God I'm not responsible for you know my family. I know a lot of people who do come from environments where they have to be responsible for their family plus maintaining their own lifestyle. So I'm fortunate in that way, but I'm like, I still got to pay off these student loans. So anything extra goes towards getting Sally Mae and Navient and First Mark Services off of my back. Okay. So. <laughs> right. I, th- I think it's time for you to do a book and we can talk offline. <laughs> but that, uh, that has to be coming up next. We got to get we got to get you. I, I, you have so much knowledge in your industry and I, it would be amazing to kind of see that culminated in a book. Okay. All right. That's my tangent on guiding. Love your it. Career. <laughs> um, but Sherelle, what advice do you have for someone wanting to launch, I guess, a newsletter or any kind of community kind of driven platform in this climate? Yeah, I think it's such an incredible time to do so. You have so many tools and resources from Substack to Medium. Um, You kind of have these audiences that already exist. Um, I will say that having a presence, a positive presence on social media also gives people a lens into who it is that you are. And you're not necessarily just competing on how how pretty your pictures are or how great your YouTube channel is and how you've been able to edit it you 100% can be genuine about your area of expertise or your exploration. And I always like to tell people like, I enjoy showing people how I'm learning out loud. Mm-hmm. I like to show my work out loud. A lot of our reporting and work has been um, been helped by folks who will tag people that we're looking for or help us complete research surveys. Um, you know, we were able to push out our statement tracker of people who were supporting or companies that were supporting Black Lives Matter during the protest yeah. on the murder of George Floyd. That and was that amazing. Yeah. It really went viral. And it was just like, oh my gosh, you know, and we've pushed out infographics and data sets and really tried to get our community involved. And even people who were just joining our community and seeing, wow, we knew nothing about the plug, but wow, this work is is phenomenal. And so it continues to help us level up. So I think that there's so many more 
stories, ideas, data to explore. And so it's like, don't be afraid, like put something out there. I mean, my first newsletter from the plug is probably cringeworthy. You know, I didn't hit every single day. I mean, we were doing Monday through Friday. So I was tired and I was like, look, y'all, I'm gonna just get right to it. Like, yeah. like here's, here's what you need to be reading today. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't have anything else to say. I'm exhausted. It's been a yeah. lot, you know? And so, and so I was just saying, you know, get started. And the biggest thing is consistency. You know, we're not all going to knock it out of the park immediately or be an instant success. And every time that I've thought no one's listening, no one's paying attention, no one cares. I've always gotten an email, some kind of outreach, a LinkedIn message where someone has been like, I've been following your work for a few years. This has inspired me to talk to my kids about getting into technology, or I've had investors say, yeah, we found three new companies to invest in because of reading your newsletter. Yeah. Sometimes I have to look at those externalities and to see like, listen, what you're doing does matter. And sometimes you just have to wait and continue to be consistent, continue to learn your own mind and just be invested and committed to the work, regardless of what it is you put out. And I love this saying Oprah has, and I'll be quiet, but she says, you know, you, you do your work as an offering and then whatever happens, happens. And I try to, that mantra when I'm feeling anxious about whether or not this is going to hit. Yeah. Ooh, that just, that hit me. Um, and that's a great reminder too. Um, so earlier this year, and we discussed this a little offline, um, you did something pretty amazing and I got to see it, uh, in person, which was great to kind of see you just bossing up and leading the room. Um, you had your very first event for the plug and, um, I just remember that day clearly because it was such a great meeting of minds and I left with so many notes um, and I remembered also, I think at that time <laughs> I was kind of, I had been chained to my desk for a couple of weeks. So to kind of be out <laughs> with people <laughs> having conversations and like, I remember leaving and just being like, yes, like, and just kind of ready to get back to work. And it was great. Um, so a congratulations. Thank you. Um, I'm assuming that event was more than likely, uh, you know, a part of your 2020 expansion plan, but you, you know, like we said earlier, you were able to finally pay yourself salary in January. You had this event and I I feel like that was the beginning of the climb and then boom, the pandemic happened. Um, How has the pandemic impacted your business and how are you, you know, how are you managing this? How are you surviving? Oh gosh, that's such a great question. First of all, it was so good to see your face there. I'm so glad you were there. I just want to like, hey, girl, hey, for a second. Oh, I know. <laughs> but it was definitely our big kind of coming out party. Like I usually am nerding behind a screen. And so mm-hmm. to get us together and to have black researchers and VCs and, and founders to like come together to have this rich conversation about what actually defines the black innovation economy was like so incredible. Um, and so Yes. And this is like right before the pandemic, like coming on this high. And then you're like, oh, wait, the world has drastically changed. Yeah. So I'll be honest. I was very concerned that we weren't going to survive. I thought out of all the things in the world right now, like the least, you know, thing that people are paying attention to is like what's happening in black tech. And but I just, we stayed consistent. We yeah. kept pushing We're so paying attention. We're so paying attention. We, we, right. Now is like, it's a great time, at least right. from a reader and consumer perspective. But yeah. And of course we weren't planning for 
you know, what happened with the series of police brutality and yeah. George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and Ahmaud Arbery, you know, those things definitely became embedded in our work. And in, and, and I just, I felt this sense of just rage of like, how are we in the middle of a public health crisis? And yet we're still having to be careful about being just outside and being black in public. That's right? it. Yeah. And so it was, I remember that week when the protests were kicking off and we were starting to construct this database of companies that were coming out and, and really speaking on, on Black Lives Matter police brutality and, and denouncing racism. And as our work began to go viral, we definitely saw an increase in people subscribing, of, of purchasing memberships to the plug. And we saw this, this attention, this attention I had never seen before, Marquita, like tech yeah. journalists that I followed for years who were in my DMs, like, I want to talk. Mm-hmm. I you know. And so, and I'm sure that like for, for all of us in media, all of a sudden there was this attention from white America and turning to what are black issues in news. Yeah. And asking a lot of questions, some of them very vapid, of course. Um, some yeah. some of them that felt like, okay, you're going to be a tourist for the next couple of months. I get that. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> and I, I got to deal with that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so what I will say is that our, our traffic increased drastically. Our right. subscriptions increased by 300%. The kind of opportunities and advertisers that were, came knocking at the door um, were really, really surprising. And and I will say as, as, as excited I am about the kind of resources we have access to that now allow me to hire people and have garnered the attention of VCs and researchers who are like, yes, we want to work with you. There's two things that I realized. Number one was if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Mm-hmm. So where people thought they were just discovering us for the first time, like we were kind of this overnight thing. I was like, no, I've been doing this work for four years. You can also check these other databases and data sets we've put together. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that for them, that was surprising. It was like, oh no, you're legit. You're a Columbia grad. You worked at Uber. You did X, Y, and Z. Like all of those things I had stacked purposefully because I understand how this, this space works, especially in journalism. Yeah. Um, and then secondarily, working through the tragedy of black death and murder was one of the hardest things. Cause it's like, we're doing our work, you know, working around the clock, trying to compile data as quickly as possible, creating infographics as quickly as possible. And literally just in tears, Marquita, like just oh, yeah. in agony. I know for all of us felt that we yeah. in such a way. I mean, I just saw on everyone's timeline, like everyone was just suffering. And so it's like, you got to work. And we know this, we know going to work, you know, especially at white institutions or, you know, white companies where you, it's completely silent when something like this has happened and you kind of mm-hmm. have to slide into the DMs or into the group chat, a private mm-hmm. group chat with your black colleagues to yeah. talk about, like, I have to give this presentation, but I'm not feeling it today. Like I am, I am, I'm feeling I, depressed. Yeah. I'm drained. I'm done. Yeah. 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 And it was um, during that time, it was so it's it's a blessing to be working at a black company because I've worked at the wider institutions and have been through those times of turmoil where it's like you're just like you go into work and it's like nothing happened. And you're bringing all of this, you know, depression and frustration and fury into the office. So it was um, it was actually really nice to just be able to even over Slack <laughs> remotely. What you did was amazing in terms of um, you know, the 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 little thing that you did that went viral <laughs> <laughs> that you hinted at earlier that that tiny little thing. Can you kind of get into um, when you decided to compile that uh, that whole project? What was going through your head, and also um, 
what what kind of work really went into it? Absolutely. So I happened to just hop on Twitter and I started to see some of the tech CEOs I followed start to make these very like like not uncertain terms about racism in America. Yeah. And it was the first time I had really seen a tech company take a stand because years ago when I was working at some of the mentioned tech companies, they said nothing. Nothing. They said nothing. They were like, let's just be silent because apparently being silent means like we won't get in trouble. Yeah. So when I saw that, I was like, I was dressed like, like, wait, what's going on here? And then I saw other tech companies and I was like, something's happening here. I'm not sure what it is, but I want to track it. Yeah. And so it was purely just me about to nerd out and do a very basic report. And I asked, I started, I asked the question on Twitter, what other tech companies are speaking out about this? Can you tag me? And then all of a sudden there's just flurry of folks start tagging me in statements and in brands. And so I was like, okay, clearly this is going to be a, a, a bit more of an undertaking mm-hmm. than I anticipated. So I was like, let me go ahead and scrape this, pull it into a spreadsheet. And um, one of my, my company advisor, her daughter was just home, was a, a journalism student, was like, listen, I have nothing to do. We have to help you. <laughs> and for like, for like 24 to 48 hours, we were just trying to find, see what happened, what time these statements were made. Um, we were grabbing other information like, OK, you've made a statement, but now what does black representation look like at your companies? Yeah, but we have to do a lot of manual digging of this information because not a ton of companies have diversity reports. Um, I ended up having to set up a separate email address for companies to actually include their their statements um, and send them to us. Yeah. And so it was a ton of like building the plane as we went. And then once once we got to about 30 companies that we could identify, we put the spreadsheet out onto Twitter and just said, hey, who else should we be tracking? Here's what we have thus far. Yeah, people took to it like crazy. I had PR folks and marketing folks in my DMs. I had tech CEOs like completely reaching out. And of course, everyone wanted to now be a part of it because it almost became like a a viral PR opportunity. Definitely. I was kind of sitting here thinking, of course, those PRs jumped on, you know, a little after to be like, wait, hold on, us too, us too. Yes, yes. (laughs) I mean, big name companies were hitting us up and, you know, our pushback and we had designed an entire form for people to complete. Like, yes, we want your statement, but we also want to know these numbers. Some people were very transparent. Some people were not so much. Some people were honest and saying, hey, we don't audit for things like diversity. Um, and then some people just lie to us because I'm like, well, you have over a hundred employees and, you know, based on law from the equal employment opportunity commission, you're supposed to report these numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, but you know, I, I will say that it, it blew my mind that this was something that went viral because as I mentioned before, you know, we've done infographics, we've done spreadsheets that have gotten some attention, but this, you know, with the timing, I think the sensitivity, um, I had no idea that people would use it as a tool to their advantage. We had VPs of companies like at, at Disney and, and Spotify and, and MailChimp and people who were sending us private signal messages and screenshotting wow. internal emails, like the, the crazy amount of like just black employees who were saying, Hey, we have a serious challenge around race at this company. And like, I use this spreadsheet to talk to my, my employer about the need for new leadership around what does diversity inclusion look like here? 
Some yeah. people were using it to figure out, well, what is the next tech company that I want to go work for? Um, but it was the first time where people saw collective information about a tech company's commitment or lack thereof, you know, and then for some people, it was a call out. It was like, hey, you just made this Black Lives Matter statement, but yeah. here's how you treated your Black people. Right. And here's her, here's your discrimination claims in the last year. So, you know, again, you know, data being super powerful. And then from that opportunity, Marquita, and this is like what completely blew my mind, is that we were able to get a grant from the Knight Foundation for $250,000. Yeah. And they were like, hey, what do you want to do next <laughs> with this database? And I was like, I want to, I want to build it out. I want it to be very comprehensive. I want to hit every tech company in the country. Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay, here's, here's some resources. Like this is a useful tool. Wow. So that was not the intention. That wasn't the vision. I initially just wanted to document this moment in history and it ended up having far more implication in usage than wow. I You know what that is? That's unbossed. That's unbossed. <laughs> Very unbossed. You just hit it. Oh my gosh, I love it. So, um, of course, you know, I always I say this to every guest, and but it is the truth. I would love to keep you here for another hour. Um, I cannot. You have things to do. Um, two more questions. I love to ask everyone on the show, uh, what is your definition of the word unbossed? Because clearly you meet my definition. <laughs> and also, uh, tell me about a Black woman, dead, alive, or fictitious, uh, who's unbossed to you and inspires your career? Gosh, oh, wow. So I will say, I believe that unbossed is having the agency to determine and design your own life. Hmm. Whether you are working for someone or you know, building your own thing from the bottom up. It is your life to determine and you get to decide how it happens. You know, 100%. You get to design your lifestyle around who it is that you are becoming each and every day. I love it. And who who's, who's embossed? I will say this. Usually I, I default to Michelle Obama because I stand for her all the time. We all do. Everybody does. We all do. <laughs> yes, but I will say I just the last couple of weeks, I have really channeled my grandmother's energy. She passed away when I was about eight years old mm-hmm. and she was a black woman in Seattle, you know, in the 60s and 70s who was helping to um you know, was was helping like the Black Panthers set up clinics, like free medical clinics for families. And she was like a vegan in the 60s, which was like, unheard of. Unheard. <laughs> I mean, she was just incredible. I mean, she was a community person. She was all about education um, and she was super fly and fabulous. And so sometimes I'm just like, I just want to be like you. Grandma. Be like you, grandma. Yeah. And she just did me so unconventionally. And I'm definitely the most unconventional person in my family. And I was like, that's all Carol May. That's all Carol May. <laughs> Not Carol May, but yeah. Yes, I love it. <laughs> um, and lastly, Sherelle, where can everyone continue to learn about all the amazing work that you're doing and how can they subscribe to the club? Yes. Please follow me across all socials. I'm just Sherelle underscore Dorsey. It's like my best place to just communicate and and talk about everything from my eyebrows popping every day to <laughs> like what's going on in Congress. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, definitely join us, join the community at The Plug and we are at tpinsights.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Be sure to listen 
Download or subscribe to more episodes of Unbossed. You can find Unbossed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple listeners, please be sure to leave me a review and let me know what you think. Be kind, but be critical. That's okay, too. Don't forget to hit me up on social at Marquita underscore Harris underscore. Be sure to use the hashtag Unbossed Podcast. Appreciate you. Thanks, guys.